Welcome to the Pelvic Health Podcast. I'm your host, Lori Forner, a physiotherapist working in pelvic health, as well as a new student researcher on the fun, long road to a PhD, where we will be looking at pelvic floor problems and exercise. I'm here to bring you information from leading professionals on all aspects surrounding pelvic health for any gender and any age, from the vast range of pelvic floor problems to exercise and sport. Remember our disclaimer, materials and content in this podcast are intended as general information only and should not be substituted for medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Welcome to the Pelvic Health Podcast, and thanks to all of you who keep coming back to listen to the magnificent guests that I am extremely fortunate to spend a little time with. I'm Lori Forner, and I have an extra special episode today. So without keeping you in any suspense, today's episode is actually part of an interview that I had the absolute pleasure, mixed with anxiety, um, to do with the one and only Professor Paul Hodges on balancing mobility and stability within the pelvic floor. This is a teaser episode, so this is only half-hour discussion. It's part of a brand new upcoming podcast series from the International Continent Society's Institute of Physiotherapy to highlight the amazing speakers that will be presenting at this year's ICS virtual conference on October 14th to 17th. You will be able to catch this entire episode after June 1st this year, so it's 2021, on the new International Continent Society podcast through their website and all major podcast platforms like iTunes and Spotify. I'll put links in the show notes so that you'll be able to find it all. And don't run away at the end of this episode because I'll fill you in on what's to come in the future ICS episodes. So stay tuned and without any further annoyance from me, maybe a little bit, here's a sneak peek at our conversation. Well, on behalf of the International Continent Society's Institute of Physiotherapy, thank you for listening to this podcast today, which is a part of a series of ICS podcasts. Today, we are talking about balancing mobility, stability, and the pelvic floor, and we have none other than the University of Queensland's Professor Paul Hodges. For those of you who are not familiar with his name, I will give you a condensed bio and be sure to listen to him at the upcoming ICS conference, which will be online from the 12th to the 15th of October. Paul is an NHMRC Leadership Fellow and Director of the Centre of Research Excellence in Spinal Pain, Injury and Health at the University of Queensland. He has three doctorates, one in physiotherapy and two in neuroscience. He is a fellow of the Australian Academy of Science, Australian Academy of Health and Medical Science, and the Australian College of Physiotherapists. He is also an honoured member of the Australian Physiotherapy Association. Paul's research interests in pain, movement, continence, breathing, and rehabilitation span from cells to humans, clinical trials, and knowledge translation. His research in low back pain has led to effective treatments and greater understanding of factors that underpin the transition from acute to chronic pain. He has received the major international prize for back pain research five times. He has authored more than 500 peer-reviewed papers and book chapters that have been cited more than 51,000 times. Thank you so much for giving your time today. We are all very honored. You're very welcome. It's very good to be here. 
Now, you have done a lot of research related to spine control, and that is where your ideas about stability began. So perhaps we should start there before applying the principles to the pelvic floor. Can you tell us your ideas about balancing movement and stability for the spine? Laurie, that's a, I think it's a really good place to start. Um, one thing that I think is really important for us to understand right from the outset, and that is that stability needs movement. And in fact, our profession has sometimes got a little bit confused about what stability actually is. And so in the early days of exercise for um, for low back pain, we had, we had this idea of stability exercise. And one of the concepts was about stopping your spine from moving. So there was all these ideas about bracing your abdominals, stop the spine from moving and keeping it, keeping it stiff or, or rigid. And what we soon realized, and in fact, I, I did some um, research in Sweden in the late <laughs> the late nineties, a very long time ago. And one of the first things we did was to actually look at, well, do you actually keep your your spine stiff when you move? And of course, you don't. You move it um, every time you move, every time you take a step, every time you do any kind of task. There is some movement of the spine, and in fact, movement is a critical part of ideal control. And what um, what we realise is that stability, in fact, is the combination or this balance of movement and stiffness. So kind of stability is kind of the wrong word for it from the outset. And um, Jacek Kolovecki, who's a, a very good friend and a very good co um, close collaborator who I've worked with for many years, he did some really um, beautiful work in the in the late 90s looking at spine stability. And it was all static. It was about how do you, how do you stop the spine from moving? And he realised, oh, okay, that's actually not enough. You need to move as well. And then he set about trying to create dynamic models of, of spine control. And he's still working on them 20-something years later later because it's so complex and the complexity is because it's not just about stopping the spine from moving it is this balance of movement and stiffness of having enough movement for the task having enough stiffness for the task and being able to continuously change that and match it to the demands of the task and the first thing the first study I ever did in the early part of the 90s was getting people to move their arms and look to see well how do you control your spine when you get the perturbation or the challenge from those arm movements and the first thing we showed was that when you move your arms you activate your trunk muscles to be able to try and control the spine when I went to Sweden I did some experiments looking at well what are the dynamics of that what's actually happening in terms of movement and what we showed was that your nervous system doesn't prepare for that challenge from arm movement by making you stiff. It actually makes you move. And so there's a little bit of movement of the spine to help do some shock absorption. And a really nice way to think about it is every time you take a step, when you land with, on, your, on your, your heel, you don't land with your legs straight. You actually allow your leg, your knee to flex a little bit and that's acting like a shock absorber. So every time your foot hits the ground, you get that little bit of flexion of the knee, that little bit of shock absorption. And you can kind of extrapolate that to the rest of the body that a little bit of movement's a good thing for shock absorption. If you, if you took a step and landed with your foot, with your knee extended and stiff and straight, all of that impact force would be impacting onto the rest of your body. But if you allow yeah. that little bit of give, you get that shock absorption. So 
we realised a long time ago that spinal control isn't about making yourself stiff. It's about getting this balance of movement and stiffness. You've got to have enough movement, but not too much. You've got to have enough stiffness, but not too much. So stability is actually about this balance. And one of the things that Yasek taught me a long time ago was this idea that stability is about keeping yourself on a trajectory or um, meeting a goal. So if your goal is to stay upright, you'll have a certain strategy. If your goal is to walk from here to the shop, you'll have a strategy. And if someone comes and flicks you or pushes you, you then have you veer off your path and you have to return. Stability is actually this idea of returning if you're accidentally perturbed. So stability has to involve movement. So stability is this balance of movement and stiffness. And for the spine, that's been really important for us to recognise. And like in, in the early days when we thought about exercise for the spine really being about making yourself stiff, that's, that can never work. That, that's going to be an appropriate for some tasks. When you're picking up 100 kilograms from the floor, you want a bit more stiffness. But if you want to walk, you actually want a bit more movement. So your nervous system's always just shifting in this balance between movement and stiffness depending on the demands of the task. And exercise for spine control has to involve teaching people to sometimes make themselves stiff, but other times allow themselves to move and finding the most appropriate way for that. So how does this then, so you're talking about the spine and spinal control, how does all of that then relate to pelvic floor? I... As a lot of people probably realise um, or probably know, um, in the late 90s, I started to become interested in pelvic floor from the perspective of spine control. So um, we realised that the muscles around the trunk, there's this, there's this canister, there's these walls, the abdominal muscles, and there's got to be a roof and a floor, and the pelvic floor is part of that. So I started to think about the pelvic floor from a, the perspective of spine control, but then over the last 20 or more years, um, I have also developed a, a really quite strong passion in understanding pelvic floor function for all of its other functions in terms of continence, in terms of breathing. Um, breathing is really critical to understand for pelvic floor and sexual dysfunction um, or a whole own pain, um, chronic pain conditions. Um, so I'm really interested in pelvic floor from many perspectives. But if we think about this idea of balancing movement and stiffness, one one thing that is really highly evidenced in our profession is the idea that having, if you, if you're incontinent, increasing the stiffness of the pelvic floor is um, a, a, an appropriate strategy to manage continent, incontinence. So uh, one of the ideas about the reason that we do pelvic floor muscle training with people with, who, who have incontinence is to increase the stiffness of the pelvic floor, so increase the mass, increase the stiffness, increase that resistance to um, opening of the orifice so that, to maintain incontinence. And so I understand that, and I think that's clearly beneficial. But I also think you've got to have a pelvic floor that moves and for two things. And I think in, in ter this principle of um, continence, and I, I, I would like to talk a little bit more later about issues of pelvic pain and obstructive yeah. 
disorders and all those kinds of things. But if we start from the perspective of continence, you do have to have a certain amount of stiffness. You've got to have a, a certain amount of stiffness of the pelvic floor muscles to prevent the urethral opening, to maintain the pressure in the urethra above the pressure in the bladder. Um, and, and that's clear. But I think you also need to be able to move at the same time. And the one from one perspective is this idea of shock absorption. And I like to think of the example of um, a trampoline. So trampolinists often having con- experience incontinence. Mm. And that's, that's because of this um, dramatic um, downward pressure that you get when you have, uh, when you're on the trampoline. And, but I like to think about the pelvic floor as a trampoline as well. And one thing that I'd like to suggest is that if you've got a stiff pelvic floor, great. But I also would like it to have a bit of give, so it's got a bit of shock absorption. So if you're jumping on a trampoline and all of a sudden the trampoline turns to steel, it's going to hurt a lot and mm. it's going to, it's going to be a really high impact. But because the trampoline is a bit stretchy, it's stiff but stretchy, then it's got some give. So it absorbs the shock and it gives it back. So I think for continence, the pelvic floor has to be like a trampoline. You don't want it like a sheet of steel where there's going to be this really high rate of impact when you when you um, take a step, when you land on the trampoline. But mm. if you've got a little bit of give, you've got some shock absorption. So you've got some capacity to for the, the pressure that's imposed on these muscles to, to give a little and then give back. So I think for for continence, you've got to have the appropriate amount of stiffness, but also a bit of movement to allow that shock absorption for particularly for the really high impact um, situations. But the other side of the story is that all of the muscles that we think about around the trunk, like your abdominals, your diaphragm, your pelvic floor, they don't just do one thing. Like your pelvic floor, they they really are clearly important for continence. They they clearly have a pivotal role in the maintenance of continence function. But they're also there for other things like controlling intra-abdominal pressure. Now, if you don't have a pelvic floor, you don't have any any intra-abdominal pressure. If you have high intra-abdominal pressure and you don't have pelvic floor response to that, you'll have incontinence. So there's Mm -hmm. this really... um, entangled link between needing needing pelvic floor muscles to allow pressure to increase and having pelvic floor muscles to um, control for the challenges imposed by intra-abdominal pressure. Now, what I'd like to suggest is that there are many functions where the pressure in your abdomen has to change and your pelvic floor muscle has to re- pelvic floor muscles have to respond to that. And breathing is a beautiful example. So every time you take a breath in, your abdominal contents have to go somewhere. So your diaphragm is descending, your abdominal wall moves out, and your pelvic floor should possibly go down a little. I'm not suggesting it goes down a lot, but it should go down a little. Mm. And so every time you take a breath, your abdominal contents have to go somewhere. And I think um, your pelvic floor muscles have to go through this cyclical change of lengthening, shortening, lengthening, shortening. And if they're too stiff and their only function is to be stiff and control continence, then that's one of the things you'll lose is that ability to allow the pelvic floor to descend, elevate, descend, elevate. And so I think it's really important to have this balance of movement and stability for pelvic floor 
thinking about incontinence, but again, a little bit later, maybe we can talk about um, the other pelvic floor pain. issues of pain syndromes and um, yeah. disorders. Because when you're talking now about stiffness, is this the same thing as strength? Are you using those two terms interchangeably? No, no. So stiffness, stiffness is a relationship between the force that's supplied and the length lengthening that occurs. So a, t- a structure that is stiff, when you apply a force, it doesn't really lengthen. It doesn't really move. But mm. a structure that is has low stiffness, when you apply the same force, it moves a lot. So stiffness is really about the resistance to lengthening when there's a force applied. So, and you can think about that from uh, when you poke a muscle, <laughs> when, when you palpate a muscle, if, if when you poke in, there's very little resistance, it's not stiff. If you poke in and there's lots of resistance to that pressure, then that it, that's a stiff tissue. So that's, that's completely independent of strength. So hmm. strength is about how much force can the muscle generate. And uh, the, the more force, probably the stiffer the muscle is, but you don't have to have a lot of strength in order to develop muscle stiffness. So stiffness is, is a different property. Can it be also called resting tone? I've heard people use that terminology. Is that the same? This is, this is a really um, challenging thing because terminology is really problematic. <laughs> yes. And, um, I'm, I'm doing a systematic review with um, a PhD student at the moment, Rachel Warman, who's um, a, a great pelvic floor physiotherapist from the US, and she's, mm. she's really interested in... Um, how we measure stiffness or tone and how that might be changed in people with different conditions and the quality of evidence that exists. So, and one of the problems is that um, the terminology that we use in the pelvic health field is quite differently applied to how it might be used in other fields. So stiffness includes both an active and a passive component. So there is an active contribution to stiffness from activation of the muscle. So the actinomyosin filaments as they, um, the cross bridges that are formed between those filaments and then the the movement of those or the um, breaking up of those has resistance to, to stretch. So activity contributes to stiffness, but there's also passive Um, properties. So the viscoelastic properties of the tissue, and that can be the viscoelastic properties of the non-contractile components of muscle, so the the fascia, the connective tissues. Also, when a muscle is at rest, there is still some bonds between the actinomyosin filaments that are not activity related, but you, you need energy to break them. So there's always some passive and some active contribution to stiffness. And So in the pelvic health world, we use the word tone to mean the same as stiffness, and that is it is this combination of active and passive contributions to this resting property of uh, this um, this property of muscle that changes um, with activation and with passive forces. In neurophysiology, often the word tone applies just to the activity part. So tone is the um, the, the recruitment of motor units, the tonic activation of motor units. So that there, there's a, there is a little bit of a, um, 
um, issue with terminology. But stiffness is, as long as we understand that stiffness is what we in the pelvic floor world mean by this combination of active and passive contributors to this resistance to stretch of a muscle. Everyone should know this by now. As a physiotherapist, I do not believe in telling women with urinary incontinence just to wear a pad or a liner and keep pushing through. I also don't believe that they have to stop doing the exercise and activities that they love forever in order to manage it. I know how important pelvic floor exercises are, I know how important modifications to risk factors are, and I know how important education is in helping to treat urinary incontinence. But I also know how extremely important promoting physical activity is. We have the highest quality evidence demonstrating that physiotherapists can greatly improve or often cure incontinence. But I also know that this management takes time. And for some women, while it might improve their leaking by 80%, sometimes they will still have leaking. Or there will be a subset of women that we can't help enough. This is why I feel incontinence pads and liners still have a place and I am honoured to be asked to partner up with Always Discreet to help break the stigma around incontinence, empower and support women to start conversations about bladder leakage, provide the best information on management and also provide options to decrease embarrassing accidents that they may continue to have. So follow the hashtag WeAlwaysGotYou which is we, W-E-E, join in on the conversation and as professionals continue to educate women about how we can help. So can we then now discuss about what happens if you have too much stiffness? Is there so, such a thing? Well, yeah, well, yeah, well I think there is. Um, and in fact, this is, um, um, it's an issue that has become increasingly discussed in our world, in the public health world. And there's been there is lots of discussion and debate, and in fact, um, Rachel Werman, the first project she's doing for a thesis is to um, look at the quality of evidence, or what 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 is the evidence and what's the quality? How convincing is the evidence that we have that there is um, too much stiffness or too much tone of pelvic floor in a in a range of different conditions? And um, a lot of clinical literature uses digital palpation. So palpating the muscle and identifying um, a, a perception of increased stiffness or tone of, of tissue. And so there, there is a lot of discussion about that. Um, there's also um, work that suggests that although physiotherapists can feel a change in stiffness, um, maybe we're all calibrated a, diff a bit differently and not everyone has the same idea about what's the threshold for too much stiffness or, or normal stiffness. Um, so there, there is a little bit of, um, um, we're, we're, it's, it's, the literature isn't completely strong yet. And I'm really looking forward to Rachel's um, systematic review to be published because it's, it's, it's got this wealth of information about um, the methods that people have used. So I think I think there is too much stiffness in some people. And I think it can present in a range of different conditions, and the um, just to give a little a little bit of a um, tempter to Rachel's systematic <laughs> please um, the the area for which in which the, or the the condition in which there is most evidence for overactivity or um, increased stiffness is um, is 
chronic pelvic pain. And the so and the idea is that many people with chronic pelvic pain present with um, increased or elevated stiffness of pelvic floor muscles. And it's it's a really interesting problem because I think it can both be a cause and a consequence of the condition. I suspect that in some people, the presence of increased stiffness is part of the problem. And like the, the old idea of when a muscle is contracting continuously, there is this accumulation of metabolites. And you only need to contract at about 6% of MVC before you start to um, prevent the removal of metabolites and compromise blood supply. So it makes sense that if there is a mm. bit of activation of muscle that's continuing, that could be a problem. Um, so, so I think there are there is a reason to think that um, the overactivity could be part of the problem. And so the the structures the there could be this accumulation of metabolites. You could be activating nociceptors in the pelvic floor. You could be um, getting this um, a sensitized system driven by bombarding the the nervous system with input from nociceptive neurons. But I also think it can be a consequence and maybe a precursor. Um, so in terms of consequence, if someone has a painful, provocative pelvic floor, there are a number of situations where that could be threatening and that could cause a person to increase their pelvic floor muscle activation. And um, there is some research that I have to have to admit I've never actually gone to find the original paper. I, I hope it exists, but there is there is allegedly a paper that argues that um, um, pelvic floor muscle activation is increased in women watching threatening videos compared to non-threatening videos. And I, I really should go and find the the original source and make sure that it says exactly that because it does. <laughs> and I, I can't remember who it is either because I remember the movie was Cujo. That's all I remember. Okay. So it is around and there is specific information. I'm really happy about that. There's just not enough hours <laughs> in the day to follow up every lead. Yeah. But the I think the idea is it, I, I think it's a really um um important idea and that is that pelvic mm. floor muscles react to situations of stress and you can imagine that psychological stress like that so watching Cujo which I've also never seen um but I I imagine it's terrifying um but also clearly a history of sexual trauma so so many yeah. so many different examples could so you can imagine that in some people there might be reactivity and the pelvic floor muscles becoming uh, overactive or stiff because of, of that but it also could potentially be a precursor in that if someone has um overactivity so maybe something about their um their function their life um so someone who has potentially had incontinence and they've trained their pelvic floor every day for the last 20 years and now they've developed a situation where the pelvic floor muscles are never letting go um i imagine that also could be then a precursor to developing a, a, a pain condition so i think it can go in, in all these different directions i think that's one of the problems is that it's not a simple mm. story that pain overactivity that's what you need to treat because maybe not <laughs> so identifying this stiffness is uh, is an important part of that puzzle but it may not always be the thing that needs to change so i think mm. overactivity does exist in um pain conditions 
I think it clearly exists in um, obstructive problems. And so um, there is a, there's a wealth of literature talking about um, overactivity of puberectalis and the external anal sphincter associated with defecatory obstructive disorders and potentially also with um, urinary, urinary obstructive um, conditions. And, mm. and so in, in the literature review that Rachel's done, one of the um, things that's really a, a problem is that in some conditions it is so accepted that the um, problem exists, that overactivity of the pelvic floor exists, that no one's ever then done a study with a control group to show that it actually exists. All they do is go and find treatments to see if they can change it. And so, so one of the problems is that the, when you go and try and find the fundamental research that shows that there is overactivity or increased stiffness or increased tone, they're all treatment trials showing can we change it with injecting Botox or doing behavioural therapy or biofeedback training or, or, or whatever. So I think... Um, I would I would imagine that in those conditions, um, having a pelvic floor muscle, um, pelvic floor muscles that don't relax or are too stiff is clearly going to be part of the the problem. the The other group of conditions like incontinence, I'm not completely certain yet. Um, as I mentioned earlier, I, I think it's good. It's important for continence to have a bit of movement, a bit of mobility, as well as stiffness. You've got to have that balance because you've got to have some shock absorption. I don't know how common it might be for people to have overactivity as the presenting issue. Um, I've certainly heard anecdotally. Um, we were currently doing a big clinical trial of um pelvic floor muscle rehabilitation for men with incontinence after prostatectomy and um we're doing we have two treatment groups we have a treatment group that does um really specific training of the urethral closure muscles so um ryan stafford is heading up that project and we're um, we're using ultrasound feedback of pelvic floor muscle contraction um, of the urethral sphincter and teaching people how to control it Beautifully. But one of our control intervention includes um, the conventional repeated maximal contractions of the pelvic floor. And anecdotally, we've had um, some, a couple of the treating clinicians make comments that it, some people are developing overactivity perhaps, and that might be compromising their control. So it's something we're going to look for. But I've certainly heard it from other therapists that overactivity in, in that in that client group particularly because um, the, uh, many men who develop incontinence after prostatectomy are desperate. They mm. want to recover their continence at, um, at all costs. And one thing they can often do is be a little overzealous and... <laughs> perhaps train a little too much, too strong. And so this may be the group where we can actually test the idea that maybe overactivity has continence consequences as well. So I think over a range of conditions, there is emerging evidence um, that too much stiffness may be, may be an issue. Wow. I hope everybody enjoyed that little teaser. That is only half our discussion. 
So don't forget to head over to the ICS podcast. Again, all of, not all of the episodes, but they will start to drop on June 1st, 2021. Um, catch that entire episode. I think it's just over an hour and other topics interviewed by committee members of the ICS Institute of Physiotherapy and School of Physiotherapy. Future episodes will cover topics like pelvic floor muscle injury and dysfunction in pregnancy, persistent pelvic pain, including endometriosis, pelvic floor physiotherapy in vaginoplasty, uh, pelvic floor physiotherapy in menopause, cancer, PTSD in children, male incontinence and sexual dysfunction, and telehealth pelvic floor physiotherapy. The guest speaker lineup for those topics that I have just mentioned is absolutely off the chart amazing, but I'm going to keep that one secret so that you have to go listen to the podcast series and find out yourself. So I hope you guys enjoyed. Take care, everyone. Check out the show notes to find out more information and all of the links so that you can find out.